0: Good morning, everyone. We are in John chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verse 12 through verse 30 in this section. I want to start out by telling you a story. Uh, Around 200 B.C., uh, there was this Greek philosopher, inventor, mathematician uh, who was living in the city of Syracuse, which was in Sicily. Uh, That's that part, I think, that the boot of Italy kicks uh, on a map. the the ball that it kicks, whatever. So he's there and he's becoming rather famous. His name is Archimedes. And he had just invented the Archimedes screw, which we still use today. It transfers water from a lower place to a higher place just by turning the screw. The water uh, goes up to a higher elevation. And he had gotten rather famous for that. Like I said, we're still using that screw mechanism today. And the king came to him and said, uh, I just had a goldsmith make me a crown fitting for my power and my, my position, but I think the goldsmith cheated me. I don't think this gold crown that I paid for is actually all gold. I think he might have put silver in it. So I want you to figure out what is this crown actually made of, but you cannot cut into it or in any way ruin it. And so Archimedes was thinking about this. He's he's puzzling in his mind. Uh, So he sets out for the next several weeks to figure out how can he determine what this crown is actually made of. So uh, a month or two goes past and uh, just a normal day that he's having and he takes a bath. So he's in the bathtub and all of a sudden he realizes when he gets in the bathtub, his weight displaces a certain amount of water. And he thought that was odd and he wondered if that happened uh, with any type of metal object or any type of object. So he started throwing other things in the bathtub and noticed that even though the size might be one thing, the buoyancy and the water displacement really was based on weight. And so he's thinking, I wonder if I put the crown in here and I have another a sample of gold and another sample of silver and i wonder if i can figure that out and so he takes a a tablet or something from his um not an ipad tablet but a real like piece of paper or or a, a slate or something and starts making all these mathematical equations he's still in the bathroom and he is getting excited 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 to the point where he finally figures out, this is how I can determine what the crown is made of using buoyancy and water displacement in my bathtub. He got so excited, he ran out of his bathtub down the streets of Syracuse yelling, Eureka, 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 while he was naked. (laughs) People remembered that day when Archimedes, the crazy, brilliant guy, Ran down the streets, naked, yelling, Eureka, 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 I found it. Now, I've never had an Archimedes moment like that, but I do remember in grade school having a problem with long division. This was well before the times where you had uh, phones or watches that could do all this for you. Uh, You had to do it long division by hand, and I was just, I couldn't get it. I don't know why I couldn't get it. So a teacher spent like, a half an hour during recess time, of course, getting me to understand it. And I remember eventually I was like, I finally get it. I get long division. And from that point forward, I had no problem, was able to do long division. So I imagine you've also had those eureka moments in life where you're just like, I get it. The light bulb goes on, you figure it out. And for the rest of your life, you feel like you're a little bit ahead of others because you've got a little bit of insight and clarity regarding whatever it might be, a skill, a talent, a piece of knowledge, you have that eureka moment, I found it. Jesus presents us with a eureka moment today. Uh, I found it, I get it. Finally, clarity on what I've been looking for and searching for, clarity. Now he doesn't give us clarity about the weight of medals. He doesn't give us clarity about a long division or a different skill or a different talent. He gives us clarity About himself and about us. And some of the people, when that light bulb went off and the light was shown on their darkness, some of them got it and figured out, I now understand God, Jesus, and me. And there were some people who, when the light bulb went off and light was shown in the darkness and clarity was given to their relationship between God, Christ, and themselves, they saw the clarity. And they rejected it. In fact, they hated the clarity. They hated the truth to the point eventually it would lead to them crucifying Jesus. The whole of the book of John is about Jesus, the Messiah, is our overcoming God King. He not only overcomes sin on our behalf, he not only overcomes death on our behalf, but he overcomes darkness on our behalf, granting us clarity, truth, knowledge, and certainty regarding the things that are necessary for us in life. We're going to start out in verse 12 of John chapter 8. And in that simple one verse, Jesus is still in Jerusalem. He is still, uh, the festival of tabernacles has already ended, but he's still in Jerusalem. A lot of people are hanging out. There's a lot of people there, so he knows this is a place where I can communicate God's truth and people will listen and hear it. It may not go off as a eureka, I found it moment, but he's giving them that opportunity. So he says in verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them, to the masses in Jerusalem at the temple saying, I am the light of the world, Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the second out of seven times that Jesus uses that phrase, I am. Earlier, he talked about I am the bread of life, and now here he is talking about I am the light of the world. And that phrase, I am, might quickly bypass us as New Testament believers, but that phrase, I am, was a clarion call moment for any Hebrew any Jew understood exactly what that meant i am because there's an instance in the old testament in exodus where moses was brought before this burning bush and god spoke to him from that burning bush and said things like take your sandals off you're standing on holy ground so So Moses takes off his sandals, standing on holy ground, and God communicates to him from that bush. And through that conversation, Moses ends the conversation by saying, hey, I know you want me to go to Egypt, and I know you want me to lead the the Israelites out of Egypt. I'm not the right guy. You told me I am. Okay, I got it. But if I just go in there saying, Moses is telling you to leave, they're going to ask me, who is it that's sending you? And do you know what God's response is? Tell him, I am that is sending you. Now, that's an odd way of communicating your name, but God isn't communicating his name in that sense. He's communicating, I'm all there is that you need to think about. I am all there is that brings you comfort and joy. It's me, it's all about me, and rightfully so, it is all about him because he's God, fully God in every aspect omnipotent, eternal, amazing in everything he does and says, all-powerful, all-knowing. Just tell him, I am is who sent you. And from that moment forward in Jewish history and culture and in Scripture, that little phrase, I am, reflected one thing. You're talking about God. You're talking about God. You're talking about Jehovah, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the God that Moses revealed himself to on that mountain where the burning bush was, I am always represented the name, character, and nature of God. The average Israelite would never use that phrase, I am, because everyone knew what it was talking about. You were saying you were God at that moment. So Jesus already has communicated, I am God, I am the bread of life, and now he's communicating again Second time, I am the light of the world. Jesus knew exactly what he was referencing, and the people knew exactly what he was referencing. He is equating himself to the nature and character of the God that revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. And he was right to do so. He was right to simply go right to the jugular of the competition and say, I will cast no doubt and give you absolute clarity and insight into who I am and what I'm going to require of you. And first of all, I'm revealing to you, I am. I'm God. There is no difference between the Father and me when it comes to our natures. I am just as powerful, just as knowledgeable, just as loving, just as compassionate. I'm a lawgiver, and I create the world. I sustain the world by the power of my word. I am. And he tells us that he is the light of the world. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, it gives us some insight into what the light of the world means. And Paul says, uh, quoting uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Let me read that again. For God who said, let the light shine out of the darkness, talking about Christ coming into the world and revealing himself and talking about this relationship, It says, God made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So this aha, eureka moment, I found it, I get it moment, this light bulb going off in your head, this clarity and precision of what God is talking about through Christ is all about reflecting God's glory. There's a reflectiveness that Christ is showing us. This is what the Father is like. He is loving and compassionate. He calls sinners to repentance. And then when a sinner repents, he offers them forgiveness and mercy and tenderness and invites them into the family. But if you reject that law, if you say, no, I'm a law unto myself or I'm hypocritical in my stance, the hammer of justice fully comes down with clarity and absolute precision to judge rightly and properly. And Paul says this is exactly what God the Father has done, is that as you look to Christ, he reflects the radiant glory, beauty, and perfections of the Father in such a way that it should reveal to us what we've been missing the entire time when we live in darkness. He reveals to us what we've been missing the entire time that we've been living in darkness. And what is he revealing to us? We talked about this already in uh, uh, John chapter 1, way at the beginning of this series, starting in verse 4, and you do not have to turn there. I'm going to read this for us. This is speaking of Jesus and John the Baptist, and John makes it very clear who, which one he's talking about. He starts out by talking about Jesus. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Clarity bringing an aha, eureka moment to our hearts. That the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Meaning that the message of Christ cannot be stopped. It cannot be overcome. It cannot be thwarted. It cannot be misguided. It cannot be stopped. It's that simple. When the message of Christ is made clear and communicated, it reveals what the darkness is hiding. Then he talks about in verse 9 following, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen the glory, the glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, what Jesus is showing us, the eureka moment of I get it, I found it, clarity is now here, darkness has been removed, and now I see brilliantly into the situation of God and man what Jesus reveals to us, is that we are sinners, comfortable in our darkness, at home in our darkness. We don't even know we're living in darkness. We're just living and existing in it as normal. And Jesus comes in and shatters the darkness of our hearts and our minds and reveals to us, this is not normal. It is not normal to suffer from anger towards others. It's not normal to hold bitterness in your heart. It's not normal to hate. It's not normal to be envious and prideful and boastful. It's not normal to have lust. It's not normal to have anxiety and fear. It's not normal. But we live in a world of darkness without the light of the gospel and God shining through Christ. We live in this and we're comfortable in it. We know no different. Uh there's, a, there's a, a, a YouTube guy I follow who was born blind. I, I forget his name, but it comes up in my feed every now and again. And he does a lot of Q&A answers, what it's like to be blind. Never had sight, was born this way, and he's, he's in his 60s. And um, people ask some really strange questions of him, like, you know, what kind of car do you have? And I'm like, he goes, I don't have a car. I, I really am not able to drive a car. And, and, and like, you know, can you tell the difference between uh, red and yellow? And he's like, you know, I, I, I don't understand the concept of color. So I don't know the difference between red or yellow. I know how to spell it, but I don't know the difference. And, uh, you know, they were talking about, you know, how do you know food is appetizing if you can't see it? Because I don't know, I trust the person who gives it to me. But the, the point of this guy is that he lives in a world of blindness. He's not bitter towards it, but he goes, I know no different. I don't know what colors are like. I don't know what it's like to drive a car. I don't know what it's like to look at food and determine on a menu which one I want. I have to be told, and I have to trust the person around me. Uh, He exhibits a beautiful example of what we are like in our sin. We don't even know it. We don't even recognize it and you can pick any sin you want to that our culture is involved in whatever it might be that you want to the pinpoint and while we get righteously frustrated and upset rightly so at sin that captivates the world and permeates the world we have to understand those people that are promoting it and excelling in promoting it they don't recognize that it's sin because they are living in a darkness of soul and a darkness of heart and a darkness of mind that hides it from them. So I cannot expect them, outside of Christ's intervention in their life, bringing light to the situation, I can't expect them to call what is right, right, and what is evil, evil. I can't expect that. We can't expect that. The world is going to have it completely misunderstood and misguided when it comes to sin. They're not going to recognize it because the light of Christ's righteousness and truth and brilliance and clarity hasn't come to their heart or mind. They still have the scales of blindness over their eyes. And so I can't expect them to get it. I can't expect them to turn and repent. I can't expect them to create laws that guard against it because they're living in a world of darkness. We are sinners, and only he can save us from our sins. Only he can reveal to us in our life of darkness when the light shines how dangerous the world is. Because if those who live in darkness, if they had their eyes open like we have as believers and see it with clarity, we would realize that we are on the edge of a precipice dancing and jumping and and partying all we can, where at a moment's notice we are but an inch away from absolute terror and falling deadly into our sin and the consequences of that sin, damnation. And this is what Christ came to reveal when he said, again, Jesus spoke to them back in John chapter 8, verse 12, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. Two very important things from there. First of all, he says, you will not walk in darkness. You will have clarity, and you will be able to see where you are going, and you won't be guessing or feeling around or hoping. You will have clarity. I know the path that I'm walking. I know the end goal. I know my surroundings. I know where my foot is landing. I know where my next foot is landing, and Christ is my goal. I have him in my eyesight. And I'm not surrounded. I'm still surrounded by dangers, but I know how to avoid the dangers. I can read the signs. I can read the warnings. I get it. And then secondly, those who follow me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Christ is saying with no uncertain terms, if you want spiritualness, if you want to be alive between yourself and God, if you want to feel the love of God, the mercy of God, the justice of God, the forgiveness of God, the closeness of God, the peace of God, the joy that God brings, if you want that in your life, then you have to turn to me, the Savior, that you might have that revealed in your heart to recognize it, to see it, and to grab onto it. It's only through Christ. The rest of our verses from chapter 13, or from verses 13 all the way to verse 30, is really one big thing, one big conversation that Jesus is having with religious leaders that make him distinctive. How is he really the light of the world? How is he really the one that can claim, I am. I am God. And so he goes through a lot of examples and a lot of truth regarding how he is the light of the world the savior of sinners in verse 13 he makes that statement I'm the light of the world verse 13 picks up with our favorite group of people the Pharisees so the Pharisees said to him you are bearing witness about yourself your testimony is not true now this is funny because if you remember back to last week the Pharisees same people Brought that woman in adultery before Jesus, and said, "You need a punisher. What should we do?" And Jesus is the one who brought up the argument. Uh, where are the witnesses? So in one case, the Pharisees didn't care about the witnesses. They only brought the guy. They didn't or only the girl. They didn't bring the guy, and all the, they weren't worried about witnesses and following the procedures. And now all of a sudden, they're like, "Oh, he's claiming to be God. You can't testify that on your own. You need a witness to prove that." Not not that he hasn't already proved it through his miracles and power over nature and sin but they want even more proof and so Jesus replies to them in verse 14 even if i do witness about myself my testimony is true first revelation of distinctiveness that Jesus gives about himself as being the light of the world is his testimony is true his words are truth and i would challenge you to look through all the scripture and find one thing that Jesus lied about or deceives you on. One thing that he lied about, our nature. One thing he lied about, God's nature. One thing he lied about, his work on earth. Name one thing that he's lied about. Of course, I know in a church, in a Christian church, no one's going to raise their hand and say, "Timmy lied about this. I, I know that we're not going to do that but I'll save anyone the embarrassment who thinks, hey, I'm going to play the devil's advocate and get Tim. Um, there isn't one, all right? There is no place in all of Scripture where Jesus lied, not a single time. His testimony is true, the first distinctive he shows about himself. And then Jesus is very clear, I know where I come from and where I am going. So where, where did he come from? not a trick question where did he come from heaven he came from heaven he descended from heaven by the beautiful miraculous virgin birth miracle upon miracle but before that miraculous birth in bethlehem he was dwelling in heaven and how long had he been in heaven forever he's not created he never had a beginning he's always been the eternal son of the father all three persons—the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit—have all been three in one, never created and never started. He's always been the Son, and always been at the right hand of the Father, and has always been there in heaven. And only at that moment of the incarnation did that relationship change—that He became or took on physical form, in the form of human. Go. So I know where I've come, come from, and I know where I'm going. So where is He going? He's going right back there. He's going right back there, but he's going back there with a different kind of, oh, dare I say, swagger in his step. Because he's going up there going, I did it. I came down knowing I would do it, and being God, I knew I would do it, but now I'm up here, victoriously risen, defeated the devil, defeated sin, defeated the grave. I'm now here. And the father says, awesome. You did exactly what was planned, exactly what I knew you were going to do. Have a seat. Your work is done. But you can't sit there long because I'm going to send you back. Not to die again, but to bring back those who have died to eternal life. You're going to bring your bride home. So Jesus goes, I know where I've come from. I know where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, and I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. The second time he's used that phrase, before he says, my testimony is true, and now he's saying, my judgment is true. I have watched enough TV and enough movies and seen enough news to realize that if I was ever accused for murder, even if I did it or didn't do it, uh, well, okay, let's, let's say if I was ever accused for murder and I know I didn't do it, I, I'm not 100% confident in our judicial system. I, I know that's a, I mean, it's not an un-American thing to say. I mean, I think our justice system is the best that the world has to offer, but it's not perfect, right? There's errors that people can make. There's judges that can see things differently than what the truth is. And there's definitely jurors that can see something and make a mistake. And there's definitely lawyers who are willing to lie to get their point across, including witnesses. It's a great system, but there are flaws. And so if you're before the mercy of a justice system, even the best that's ever been, There is the potential, right, that they'll make a wrong judgment, that they'll make a mistake. And that's scary, even if you know you're innocent, that it might not go your way because of humans living in darkness. Imagine the terror that would be part of our lives if we knew that, okay, when we die, God will judge us, Christ will be our advocate. I mean, the courtroom is set. How terrifying would it be if we didn't have assurance that the judgment that Christ makes is true and right, that if it was going to be arbitrary, that there might be a mistake or an error in the judgment of God, Man, I, there'd be no comfort in death. There'd be no joy and peace in that moment of facing God as our judge if it was possible, he could make a mistake and it could be an error. But we can have confidence. We can have assurance and peace of mind knowing that when we are judged before the Father, it's going to go exactly like this. And Scripture tells us in numerous places this dialogue. You stand before the great white throne judgment. It's just you and God. God. And all of a sudden, someone rises up and says, "Ah, Tim, yeah, yeah, I. Let's go over a list of the sins that he did." And they start listing all of these sins. And of course, our accuser is who? Satan, accusing us of every thought you had that you knew you shouldn't have, especially during church service. He goes, "Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha, 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 gotcha." And has his whole list and your defense attorney, Jesus. The judge looks at him and says, is this true? And Jesus goes, yes, he did every one of those things. And because I'm all-knowing and Satan is not, I got some more things that he did. Wow, not a good defense attorney. And the father says, well, how does he plead? pleads not guilty. How can that be possible? We all agree that he did these things. And the son says, yeah, but turn in your book. How many of those charges actually stick? The father turns to the book of life and says, his name's written in the book of life. No judgment against him. No sentence against him. No sin against him. None of them stick. Why? Because the page of his life is covered by this blood of the Son. It's all wiped out. It's all erased. It's all been paid for. And the Father turns to the Son, have you paid for his sins, for all of them? The Son says, yes, and the proof here is in my hands and in my side. I died on that cross for him. And so the Father has no, no reason to judge guilty. But judges us innocent. We have clarity and certainty and uh, comfort in that dialogue that we are not guilty before God because the Son took our punishment and put His life in place of ours. So His testimony is true, His judgment is true. For, for Jesus says, It is not I alone who judge, and, I and the, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness. So not only is he the one who says his testimony is true, his judgment is true, but his bearing witness is true about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. And they said to him, Therefore, where is your Father? And Jesus said, You neither know me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come true. So Jesus is giving testimony after testimony after testimony and evidence after evidence after evidence that the Pharisees are not going to get this message because they're still living in darkness. They haven't seen Christ as the Eureka, I found it, I get it moment. They still have their eyes closed, their eyes blinded. They're not understanding the truth that Christ is communicating with, I think, very simple language. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Jesus says, there's going to be a time and a moment where I'm not going to be available. And you're rejecting me. And in that rejection, when you die, you're going to die in your sins, and you will not be saved. You will not get a second chance. You will not have purgatory to make it up for you. It's a lie from the pit of hell. when you die, If you do not see me as the light of the world, you will die in your sin. And the judgment scene is going to look much different. You're going to stand before God, but you're all on your own. There's no advocate with you, it's just an accuser, and the accuser is going to hurl accusation after accusation from the moment you took your first breath to the moment you died, a list of all your sins. And God's going to look in his book of judgment, and they're all going to be recorded. None of them are going to be erased and none of them are going to be covered by the blood of his son. And he's going to say, what's your defense? And you will have no excuse. No excuse that you can come up with will make it up to God. And his hammer of judgment and justice will come down guilty, guilty, guilty. And that sound, that one simple word will resonate In your mind for eternity, that there is no hope of getting out of the judgment of hell. That's what Jesus means to the Pharisees. You will die in your sin. Hope is gone. Terror is now your only friend. That's scary, that's terrifying. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am the one, I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just as I have been telling you from the very beginning, I have much to say to you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world... That I have heard from him. See, that's part of the beautiful character and nature of Christ, is that he's not making this up as he goes. He's telling us in his word and in our hearts exactly what the Father commanded him to say. Tell them these words that without the light of life in their heart, without the bread of life in their life, they will die in their sins. Call them to that, son. Press them on their need to repent and believe. Press them on their need for faith over obedience. Press them that you are the only way. And they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about God the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, talking about his crucifixion, then you will know that I am he. Again, the same exact words, I am. They will notice, they will recognize, they may not believe, but they will have better clarity, a little bit of light shined into their actions that when they put the son of man up on that cross and hang him there to die, just as the guard who did that said, truly this is the son of God, they will know their actions are held against them unless they repent. Then he concludes the chapter. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. It can be a confusing discourse that Jesus lays there. Lots of language that is hidden from the Pharisees but alive to us. And the last verse of that chapter, of that section, excuse me, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Many believed in him. Instead of wanting to rush him and put him to death, Many believed in him. That is the light of Christ coming into their hearts, shining the brilliance of that light into their life, and believing in him. One of the ways that Scripture communicates to us, and the primary way, actually, that when that light has come into our hearts and into our lives as believers, as individuals, we express that work of God through baptism, And it is a joy for us to celebrate that and to acknowledge it and to rejoice and to praise God when someone has had that light of light brought into their heart and they believe, and they symbolize that belief with the burial and resurrection that baptism represents, the new life and the covenant of God's faithfulness that it represents. And so as the band comes up and I close in prayer for this moment, And those people that come up to be baptized, meet me in the back, let's rejoice with them. Let's celebrate with them. Let's praise God for the work of bringing light into their lives that they now see Christ as he truly is, one who bears true testimony and brings life. No longer are you under the pain and penalty of dying in your own sin. Father, we are grateful and thankful for your mercy in our lives and for the mercy in the lives of these people. And we ask that this mercy be extended to everyone we pray for, that they would come to repentance and salvation and see you as the Son of God. In your Son's name we pray, all of us. Amen.